Hello and welcome to Studio P3. This is Marjolaine Fournier. I'm sitting here with Jean-Jacques Van Vlasler. And today, well, I've been looking forward to today for a long time because we're going to talk about my favorite composer, Prokofiev, and a cantata that he wrote, which is Alexander Nevsky. It's not a very long cantata compared to the, the, the film that uh, it originated from, which is um, a film he made with Eisenstein. Now, I asked some friends who are Russian to describe Prokofiev as a compatriot, and I said, in three words, describe Prokofiev. And one friend said he was arrogant and unpleasant. And I said, well, that's only two words. And then my friend said, well, he's very arrogant and unpleasant. What is the gray zone between being arrogant and being a pure extrovert? Um, so there is that pure extrovert, you know, very uh, nervous man, a hyper-excited temperament. Um, let's say uh, I, I, he would be uh, called medically excitable <laughs> um, with particular energetic reactions. Um, and that could turn out being, uh, at, in certain circumstances, uh, having a bad character. Certainly, but at the same time, this is a man with extraordinary energy, overflowing energy, vitality, um, and, um, as I said, nervous. So, uh, where does this all situate? It's, for me, what is important is what flows within his music, and you have this great um, uh, vital vital music um, you know sometimes impulsive music um, uh, you know uh, when you c compare it to the, the the grinding rhetoric of Shostakovich mm -hmm. <laughs> you have here a, uh, a sometimes telluric agitation <laughs> but also True. but also on the other side and I want to say this on the other side Beautiful lyric moments. Think of Romeo and Juliet. Um, very simple, simplified, but straightforward music on, uh, on the other side um, with P uh, Peter and the Wolf. And also in this extraordinary cantata called Alexander Nevsky. So, you know, people are not always what uh, they are reduced to. Well, what, I, what I fight is the reduced reductionist portrait of Prokofiev. And, and unfortunately, you know, you're, you're uh, reminding me that I, I looked through and I read through five different biographies. And it's strange, but the same portrait mm -hmm. didn't emerge. The same portrait was retold. It w it's very much, there's the box, there he is, mm -hmm. and that's it. Mm -hmm. And it's quite opposite. The portrait and the music that I love are so different. You're right, and I do think that one has to open up uh, <laughs> that box and, and show that this man was torn between lyricism and a society in which he imitated wonderfully also the industrial world. 
um, in in which he he came so close to 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 the energy of a society that was getting into aviation, into cars, into uh, the, the the rapidity of time, you know, the, the the rapid flow of time, and which he expresses very clearly. At the same time, at the same time, between that lyricism and that, he is also torn between classicism because he he is a classic. His symphonies are classic. His some of his sonatas are classic. His concertos are uh, much more classic than, than Shostak Shostakovich's ones, uh, certainly. And so he's torn between that classicism and, and being able to put that vitality through music, which he can do in ballet, which he can do in films. So let's open the box and let's see what happens to this enfant terrible called like that uh, of the 20th century. And who has, in the reception of musicians in the early 20th century, uh, been boxed in between, again, between two other great composers, on the one side, Stravinsky, on the other uh, hand, uh, Shostakovich. Yeah, and, and let's so not forget Rachmaninoff. Like, when he goes on tour, he's often following Rachmaninoff on the tour. Uh, Rachmaninov, great pianist, and then uh, Prokofiev, great pianist, yeah. and <laughs> and so these these two men. But Rachmaninov is another world; is uh, is the lost world. Yes. Prokofiev is the forward-looking world; is the is the new world. Pro you know, and, and you're bringing this up, and I, I want to for a second or two go into this. Rachmaninov uh, composes seventy-five percent of his works before 1917 <laughs> and 25% the rest of his life because he's uh, he's outside his natural environment and he's kind of lost to the world up to a certain point i mean up to a certain point but and then on the other hand you have prokofiev who is a cosmopolitan who travels all over the place you know his life is in three parts in fact uh, let's say uh, geographically speaking first part Russia the second part for about 15 17 years uh, torn between the west and the east between Paris London and uh, Moscow and St Petersburg and then the third part Soviet and <laughs> Russian first uh, west and then Soviet and what struck me is that when he came back uh, to the Soviet Union I guess then it was um, he wasn't judged very kindly. He, he was, uh, well, you, you're not a real, you left. We had the revolution, you left. Yes, and that was later. Back, that was fine. later. In the beginning, he was very uh, well looked after because he was a famous uh, Russian pianist who was outside, and he was rather apolitical, you know. Um, uh, uh, when he leaves uh, the, the, the then Soviet Union in 1917, it is not why Rachmaninoff leaves the Soviet Union. He simply wants to travel. You know, he's at that point, he's 26 years old. He has composed extraordinary contemporary works, some of them in, uh, uh, let's say, some of them fighting the, the Stravinsky uh, fashion <laughs> mm. and uh, and doing same kind of works like Stravinsky, uh, uh, trying to create ballets that are the same like Stravinsky, and which are absolutely. When I was talking about telluric <laughs> intensity, well, you'll have it in a, in the Scythian Suite, 
you know, which is a, 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 a which is a, a suite, an orchestral suite, which he has uh, taken from a ballet, um, uh, which was the alternative ballet to uh, Stravinsky's Sacre du Printemps. So Sacre du Printemps, 1913, uh, the, the ballet that uh, Prokofiev proposes to Diaghilev, uh, then in London, uh, in 1914, mm. and it's called Ada and Lolly. But uh, Diaghilev doesn't want it because it's too, it's too immense. I mean, it's in it's an extraordinary piece of music, very avant-garde. And it's at that time that he will compose also his second piano concerto. And that second piano concerto goes to the limits, the physical limits of a pianist. And, uh, and this is the time that he grew. And then at the same time, he says to them, you know, listen, guys, I am gifted and I can compose classical music. And he composes in 1917 his first symphony, the classical symphony. So he's just between two worlds, gets into the new world in 1917, travels to the United States, composes the love of the three, uh, the three oranges in 1920 sometime, again, goes to live in Paris and composes his third piano concerto, the concerto that everybody loves. That's, you know, the, the, most, the most often played piano concerto and uh, composes his opera, uh, The Flaming Angel, which is again, in a, 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 an extraordinary strong-willed opera, mm -hmm. um, he will take that music, by the way, because you know not too many people uh, can mount this opera, can produce this opera. And uh, it, what he does, he takes the music of it and puts it in his third symphony. Uh -huh. Every movement is part of that uh, flaming angel. Prokofiev. Um, I have to say, uh, is somebody who doesn't let uh, his music disappear, all the trials or all the, 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 the drafts that he has made and some of his works that have not been accepted. Well, he recycles and he recycles remarkably well because then he reduces, and you have mentioned this in the very beginning, he, he takes those 21 scenes of the Eisenstein film Alexander Nevsky, and he will reduce it to seven uh, parts, and these seven parts will be the cantata Alexander Nevsky. We will talk about in a few seconds. So he has this European period, and by the way, in Paris in 1929, when the opera is being played in, in Paris, it is conducted by whom? Pierre Monteux. Pierre Monteux, who has done the premiere of the Sacre du Printemps uh, about uh, how many years? In 1913, so about uh, uh, 13 years before. So uh, he was very good in contemporary music. And so, you know, the top level conductors would be playing his music. Very famous. And then suddenly, by 1932, when most of the other ones, uh, of the other uh, composers like uh, Cherepnin, uh, like Rachmaninoff, uh, like the singers like Chalyapin will leave Russia, um, he will go to Russia. And this is extraordinary. It's a complex man. It, it, it's so easy to say, you know, he was... Uh, he was uh, aggressive. Yes, okay, he, he was aggressive, but well, how much theater was part of that aggressiveness? He, he, he dressed uh, aggressively also, lots of colors, he liked that. And was, he was handsome, a, eh? He was, a he was tall, handsome, uh, handsome person, yes. And I have to say, he's probably the only composer that we studied that was an only child. 
Yes, a rather well-to-do family, but not in the same way the Rachmaninovs were. Um, the Rachmaninovs were. That's interesting, yes. Well, you never can tell, you know, that this one child, uh, this is, well, we'll leave that for a psychiatrist to, uh, to, yes. to explain, yes. So he is, uh, he goes back to Russia in, uh, well, to the Soviet Union um, around 1932, but he won't stay. He will go back to the West. He will travel a lot. He will definitely go back in 1938. And that's when he will stay until his death uh, in March 1953, and he will die the same day Stalin dies. Mm -hmm. His relationship with, with, uh, with the authorities was, in fact, less ambiguous uh, than one wants to say. When he was attacked for being, quote, formalist, unquote, that means uh, giving too much to the form of music instead of expressing the folklore of, uh, you know, the socialist, realist ideology. While he was being attacked, Stanov is talking about Prokofiev's music. Mu uh, 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 Prokofiev, you don't express what the, what, what, what the people is, uh, is about. Well, he's talking to a friend next to him. He's not listening. While Zdanov is, is, uh, is talking to him, uh, why he's being accused. In 1948, he's being accused, together with another uh, series of, of composers, of being too formalist, amongst which, obviously, also Shostakovich. Um, that's the end of the regime, of course, and at the end of a regime, the regime becomes very, very, very angry and very hard and very... Uh, uh, very tough with uh, with the people, and uh, and so the creativities they try to master the creativity of the country much more, which was not true in the 1920s. That's when Shostakovich writes T for two. I mean, when he rewrites T for two, they they could listen to jazz. There are lots of jazzy elements in the beginning of Shostakovich, and also Prokofiev can just be himself. And now, this is something that I don't understand, I, uh, this way of being, where I always understood that a Russian artist leaves the Soviet Union, and he leaves, he's gone, and he can never come back. But you're, you're describing a life where in, in 1917, the, the year of the revolution, he leaves, he comes back, he yeah, leaves, he goes, he's free as a bird. He uh, he's free as a bird up to a certain point. He had from 1932 on. He has lots of difficulties obtaining visas uh -huh. and visas in, visas out, and so all these things are grayer and more difficult and more. Uh, it's not as straightforward as one right. thinks. Uh, you know, he will write in 1937. He will write a text in in the Pravda. Which is, uh, is is really an attack uh, is an attack against uh, against the ideology of the of the uh, the, the, the system, um, and he, one has to have lots of courage. 1937. That is one year after uh, after Lady Macbeth of Tensk by Shostakovich has been eliminated and uh, uh, being very successful, by the way, had been played for so long already, um, and in 36 suddenly. Truck, uh, 
Unpatriotic, un Russian, well, formalist, formalist. That that was the term that was being used, and and very negative was garbage, but by the one who wrote the article in the Pravda and was influenced, of course, by by the by the higher level. But in 1937, so one year afterwards, Prokofiev writes the following in the Pravda, and I quote. Any tentative for an artist to adapt to the taste of the listener underrates both the cultural level and the quality of his taste. And doing this, he shows a lack of sincerity and non-sincere music is empty music. This is extraordinary. I mean, it says so it all. This, it says it all. He's almost daring the state to do something, though. Yeah. Uh, that's that's very risky to say something like that, yeah. no? It's very, it was very risky in 1937. And then in 1938, in 1938, he will compose this, uh, this Alexander Nevsky, working wonderfully well with Eisenstein. I have to say that that was just after his last tour of uh, North America, piano, as, as a soloist. Of North America, I, I think also he went to Canada at that point. He played uh, in Canada, but he plays essentially and goes and studies the film music done in Hollywood. So he hangs around Hollywood a little bit because all those uh, all those people that have fled already Nazi Europe are making marvelous music in the in the film world. Korngold uh, and company, and my God, there is a whole series of them there. This, this would be a wonderful topic to talk about. So Prokofiev learns. He sees what they are doing. He will bring all that back, and the collaboration between Eisenstein and Prokofiev is first class. First, because both of them are great artists. They they uh, they honor each other, and they they, they and they listen to each other, and it, it is perfectly integrated. This is one of the great artistic collaborations um, of that period. And so um, he um, they they will work on this Nevsky sometimes by having elements of the film being made. Prokofiev will look at it. The next morning he will bring his music uh, ready for that part. You know, there are 21 parts, uh, musical elements that get into uh, the, the film Alexander Nevsky. And he, uh, it was not his first film, by the way. He had done Lieutenant Kije before that, which was more, uh, a more happy-going one. This one, of course, is a dramatic one. And so, um, but the contrary is also true of what I was telling a few seconds ago is that, you know, he would see a sequence, a, film se a filmed sequence already, and then afterwards he would make his music. But they would discuss the music, he would give ideas to Eisenstein, and Eisenstein would make the, the sequence after that. Very, very interesting collaboration.
what are they talking about? They're talking about uh, a uh, historical battle between uh, the Russians and between the uh, Teutonic uh, chivalry, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the, the Teutonic knights, yes, uh, in the Middle Ages, we're in the 13th century. Uh, this happens around 1242, yes, 1242, and it is the, the, the Teutonic knights fighting Alexander of Novgorod, um, and uh, he defeats them uh, in a famous battle on the ice. Lots of people on both sides are being killed, and uh, he becomes a hero, this Alexander of Novgorod, who had already two years, two, three years before, defeated the Swedes, very strong army at that time, very strong and very aggressive country at that time, and uh, who was called, this Alexander von Novgorod was called Nevsky, in short. So they take this element of history, and why do they take the element of history? Because they're very frightened of, of German militarism. We are in 1938, just imagine, 1938 is one of those pivotal dates in European history. That's when, uh, when the, the war is brimming all over. But, but they, nobody knows what or when, or they know what, no, but they don't know when? They, they don't know when, you know, and the, 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 there is this Hitler who has created an enormous army, and the Russians are not ready. And so this, yeah. the, 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 and this will lead, of course, to the, uh, uh, to the, uh, the pact that they will do in 1939 between the Nazis and the Soviets, and then the whole political world will be changed. But at that time, 1938, uh, when they make the film, there is this, this so there's unrest already. Unrest and preparation of war, and and it's the same kind of war. Russians, and at the other side, you have uh, the uh, uh, German militarism, uh, the Nazis, uh, and in power, and which was very dangerous. And it proved it is proven to be very dangerous. Um, uh, Fifty million people dead after that in 1945. So it's uh, a very very hard time. As one of my friends said. Uh, speaking about the two world wars, uh, Europe tried to suicide twice, and they succeeded. Mm. And I, I still keep this in mind, thinking of what is happening today in Europe. So I have um, um, th this story is being taken, and uh, and 21 scenes, wonderful collaboration. Things go very well, very fast, because. Both of them have this internal um, precision and also the poetical side. And you, you who love so much uh, Romeo and Juliet, the ballet, you know, it's so poetical, it's so beautiful. I mean, this is, and, and so lyrical. It is, you're right. And, and so there are seven parts to this cantata. The structure is seven parts, and we'll go very quickly over the mm -hmm. seven parts. The first one is the R Russia under the Mongolian, Mongolian yoke, with this bleak introduction, a bleak prelude, you know, it's, uh, it's about internal suffering yeah, it's of, very of murky. the country. Murky. Very murky, yes, very yeah. murky. It's like a, a dawn on catastrophe, you know. <laughs> very well put. And I yeah. think this is, uh, this. I think this was... This is the right one. <laughs> um, then after that, you, it's a very short uh, prelude. 
Then a second part, um, the song about Alexander Nevsky. This is a kind of portrait of the valiant leader. <laughs> and uh, then a third part, the Crusaders in Pskov. I have to explain uh, who the Crusaders are. The Crusaders are, of course, the Teutonic Knights. So the, the negative element. And Pskov is where the battle had taken place. Uh, the battle um, on, the, uh, on the lake Schutzkoye. <laughs> and uh, this is the, you know, the battle on the ice, which will happen a little bit later. So the Crusaders in Pskov, and for those that want to look up uh, on a map, it's a little bit south of St. Petersburg. So they're, um, and in, because they're enemies, you know, there are lots of dissonant elements in that, in that part of the music. Now, he's also playing in, in the cantata, if I open a parenthesis here, in the cantata he plays between dissonant elements, descriptive elements, he's wonderful in description of, of reality, and on the other hand, uh, you have the straightforward elements, you know, the, the songs and, the, and the, the Russian part of it. And, and it's very, a very interesting mixture between his Russian period, Soviet period, perhaps, and between the Western period. The Western period of which I spoke, the, the Flaming Angel, the Scythian uh, uh, Suite, uh, the Second Piano Concerto, all these works brimming with energy and uh, dissonant elements, of course, I, uh, because with, uh, with him, you know, there are uh, often disjointed harmonies, you know, sudden fluctuations from the naive and the simple to the unexpected and the complex. And we have it all. We have it all in this wonderfully full work. And then, uh, of course, um, so where were we? We were at the Crusaders in uh, Pskov. And well, it will be followed by um, Arise, You Russian People, which is the fourth element. And then you get full, uh, it's, a, it's an appeal uh, to the Russian people. Um, don't let yourself be done by these invaders. And there you go. And then we get to the central element, the Battle of the Ice, which is the longest piece. All the other ones are two, three minutes long, sometimes less. And there you get suddenly 12 minutes, more than 12 minutes, of an incredible musical description. Um, a, a sound work <laughs> for, uh, of, uh, for big orchestra, and uh, this is the battle. And I must say, it is impressive. It leaves you breathless. <laughs> um, this, is, this is the centerpiece, and uh, I was told that this was the first element Eisenstein and Prokofiev discussed when they started the movie, is the Battle of the Ice. So that's the first thing that they That's the first thing up. they, they uh, oh. went to. And then, of course, after the battle is over, then, you know, as usual, war, what does war do? It, you know, it, it, it kills people. And it's the, uh, the, the sixth part of the cantata is the field of the dead. In the film, there is a young girl uh, who is trying to find the body of her beloved. And uh, this, is the, this is, of course, a very uh, sad and very dark uh, uh, element within the cantata, and it's being sung by a mezzo-soprano, usually. But it can be uh, sung by a dramatic soprano because it's not an easy part, but it's a, it, and, and, and both technically and musically. 
it is. And then you get to the last part, of course, Alexander's entry in Pskov, the triumphal march and the victory song by the Russian people. And uh, there you go. This is Alexander Nevsky. Alexander Nevsky, uh, 1938, one of those works that will stay into history, uh, even if we don't see the movie very often. I have never seen the movie, in fact. I've seen some Shostakovich early movies of the night at the end of the 20s, yes, early 30s, but I've not seen the, the, uh, the um, uh, Nevsky. Well, you, you can grab little bits. I, it's hard to find. You can grab little bits on YouTube. The yeah. battle, the ice cracking. Mm -hmm. And the effects, you can hear a little bit the effects of, uh, of Prokofiev's composing. But I, I was thinking, you know, how come he, he chose a mezzo? Now, if I had been composing, and he's so good at, you know what I love about Prokofiev is that he can write one phrase, sad and hopeful at the same time. And the text, like, what she's singing, she's saying, I'm not looking for the most handsome, I'm looking for the bravest. And that's beautiful, and it's a, an appeal also to patriotism, but how come he asked a mezzo to sing this role instead of like a young lady, uh, a soprano? Well, he, it's a dark moment. This is a, 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 a almost an alive cemetery she's mm. walking into. Yeah. And she sees all these corpses left and right and on eyes, you know. There is a, there oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, nature is dead and there is death all around. So what he most probably tried is to get that darker element of the voice uh, into into the work. Now, after, you know, I, I was saying what I read is he was really criticized for having left and being, you said, yes. cosmopolitan. And, yes, yes, Well, yes. I would say something this patriotic, this music that you could use the, you know, that movement uh, uh, arise Russian people. Like, that's patriot, like, that's... Ooh, Completely patriotic. He must have received medals for that music, for that movie. They must have been honored, no? Yes, but yes, I, I, I think he was named, uh, you know, uh, there were all, all kinds of things, uh, uh, artist of the Soviet Union or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know exactly if it was after this. It, 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 it was after the Fifth Symphony. There you go. After mm -hmm. the Fifth Symphony, which is a very classical one. Uh, we're very different of three and four because three has been based, as I told you, on the frame. Angel and four has been based on his on his uh, uh, ballet shoot s a s h o u t shoot and uh, which is a very realistic work um, and so these were very different uh, very different symphonies then you get suddenly in a much more classical symphony the fifth symphony which is very often played and which was finished in 1945. As you see, 1945, yeah. nice classical symphony. He has returned. He's not a formalist anymore. <laughs> but, you know, I see, you remember what I just said about his article in the Pravda, 1937. And in 1948, he will be condemned, like uh, Shostakovich and many others. Um, and some of his works, Shostakovich was not allowed to be played anymore, but uh, uh, performed anymore for a certain number of months or a time, some time. But he, some of his works were off the repertoire also. The City and Suite, the Buffoon, and the Steel Dance, which has to do with the industry in the Soviet Union in the 1920s. The Steel Dance, the Prodigal Son, some of his ballets. 
so what do you do in a country where um, the um, where idealism takes over from creativity? <laughs> Uh, uh, ideology, I mean, where ideology takes over from creativity. This is, this is so he will compose in '47 an opera called "The Story of the Real Man." Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, this is part of yeah, okay, propaganda work. He will do it. He will write a certain number of works that are propaganda works, but it doesn't help. They were very, 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 very tough in 1948. So he's going to live his whole life, pretty much, under this weight of ideology of Stalin? Uh, yes and no, because I think in his mind he was, he, he was as free as anything. Yeah. He died quite young. Uh, if you look, 1891, 1953, that's young, 63 years old. Yeah. I mean, this is now, um, he died quite young. Why? High blood pressure. <laughs> is that all? Uh, amongst yeah. other things, mm. but it's a high blood pressure very much, oh. but which really... Yeah. There's irony to the day that he died, no? Of course, but that was the day that Stalin died. And so nobody nobody took any notice of, uh, of uh, Prokofiev's dying. And uh, it's only a few days later that one, the, one of the most important composers of the Soviet Union and of that period, and I will say of, of our 20th century, was gone. And we have Alexander Nevsky. And we have Alexander Nevsky, which, uh, which says so much about being there at that time. I mean, and being there at that time and at the same time responding to uh, the, uh, the, the atmosphere of the time, but done by two great artists, and two great artists bypass all ideology. Beautiful. Jean-Jacques, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to speaking to you again. You're welcome. <laughs>